Well, good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Psalm chapter 109, Psalm 109, as we continue our teaching series through the Psalms on the subject that it's okay to not be okay. As we jump into the text this morning, I want to get our minds around the subject we're about to tackle by offering you five scenarios, five moments, five pictures that may have happened in your life sometime in the last week, month, or couple months. Let me give you these five scenarios, and as I do, just keep a running tally of how many of these have shown up in your life in the last couple of months. Situation number one, your food takes too long to come out at a restaurant. Now, there's a certain amount of time we expect. We don't expect to order it, and it's there immediately. But once it reaches that threshold, what begins to happen? Number two, you get cut off in traffic by someone who isn't looking And most likely in our day and age, they were not looking at the road because they were looking at their cell phone. And of course, you have never looked at your cell phone, but they, in that moment, did. Number three, your child cannot find her shoes when you are running out the door. Again, enough said. Number four, your boss calls on a Saturday and needs you to do something. It is your sanctified and special Saturday, the one day you do not think about work, and yet he calls. She calls and needs you to do something. Situation number five, you watch cable news for 60 seconds or longer. Now, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I am going to wager a guess on how you felt. Um, but first, let me just by show of hands, any of these situations happen in any of your lives in the last six months or so? Okay, all across this room. Again, here's my guess. It's just a profound insight. This situation happened, any of these five, and you were mad. Now listen. You came to church this morning for some deep insights, and there you go. If something annoying happened and you were frustrated, you were angry, you were mad. And as much as that might sound like a silly insight, it's actually important to look at this. Because here's what I want to observe this morning. These five scenarios could not be more different, right? One's about food or traffic or shoes or Saturday or cable news. And yet our response to these very, very different situations is the same exact emotion. It is some kind of species of anger. It is being mad or frustrated or outraged or embittered. Yet you're at the table and the food's taking too long. You get impatient and you're irritated. You're cut off in traffic and we've actually created a word for this, road rage, right? We experience that inside of our soul. Your child can't find their shoes and of course you expect your child to be perfect at all times just like you were as a child and so you are outraged with your child. Your boss calls on a Saturday and you are bitter, you are angry, you are upset. And then let's just confess here this morning, I don't think it takes much more than 30 seconds to get outraged watching the news today, am I right? So, so, so here's what happens. All of these different situations and scenarios in life, I could list a thousand more of them here, and our response, our reaction, is the same. It is some species of anger. And for us to get underneath why, with all these different scenarios, we have the same response, we have to understand where anger comes from in the first place. And here's what I'll put to you this morning. Very simply put, we get angry when we don't get what we want. We get angry when we don't get what we want. The anger is the human reaction to our will being obstructed. It is the human reaction to the world not going the way we think the world should go. Now, when I say this out loud, that anger is your response to you not getting what you want, for some of you, the response to me is anger. And you're angry because you go, Brian, your examples, your five little examples on screen, those are cute and fun and all, but I'm angry for real reasons because I've been really wounded. I've been really hurt. See, your examples are silly, Brian, but I've actually been hurt by a spouse. I've been hurt by a parent. I've been hurt by a business partner. 
I've been abused, I've been betrayed, I've been neglected, I've been stabbed in the back. See, for some of you, your anger is an actual thing that that was so wrongly done to you, an injustice that was hit upon you, and you've received that and you're angry. And your response is, it's not just I didn't get my way, I'm angry and I believe God is angry about it too. And here's what I want to acknowledge this morning. For some of our hurts, that's exactly the case. In fact, I'll put it this way, that sometimes our anger can be entirely aligned with God's anger, and it's righteous. Again, if you have been abused, if you've been hurt, if you've been manipulated, betrayed, stabbed in the back, if there's been some kind of injustice done upon you or your family, there is a righteous kind of anger that aligns with God's anger, and it is a right and good and holy kind of anger I don't want to take that away from anyone or deny that that's even present here in this room. For some of us, the wounds we've received are so deep that they are the kind of wounds that God is angry about as well. The world did not go the way we thought it should. We did not get what we want. And we did not get what we want in the same way that God did not get what he wanted. But here's the danger. And I want to identify this from the top. The danger when talking about righteous indignation, righteous anger, is that we would very easily slip into a pattern of thinking that all of our anger is righteous. Because I don't know if you've noticed this about your own anger, I've noticed it about mine. It always feels righteous in the moment. In fact, it's so rare that I speak to someone who doesn't think their anger is righteous. You ever seen a guy just going off, he's screaming, he's upset, he's mad, you go, why are you mad? He goes, no reason whatsoever. No one does that. We all think our anger is justified. We all think our anger is righteous. In fact, we all think God's mad about the same things we are mad about. And so while sometimes our anger is entirely aligned with God's anger and it is righteous, I also want to remind us that most of the time our anger is somewhat aligned with God's anger and it's complicated. And that's the kind of anger I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the complicated kind of anger in our life where we're mad about something, but if we're real honest and get underneath it, we know it's also mixed in with selfishness and pride and bitterness and all sorts of jealousy and other things that are built around that. See, I want to acknowledge in this room this morning that whether it's a big thing in your life that's happened to you or something as small as a fight that you and your spouse got into on the way here to church today or a frustration you've had with your children this weekend, Whatever it is, there is an anger that bubbles up within us. And as much as we can acknowledge that sometimes that anger aligns with God and it is righteous, I also want to acknowledge that there is a complicated set of angry, angry things that have happened, every angry emotions that have stirred in us, even this weekend. And here's what I want you to know, that the premise of this whole series is not that you would just get rid of the anger. Well, we're not preaching some sort of stoic philosophy that says if you just follow Jesus enough, you won't feel anything. You'll just kind of be this detached person. That's something, some kind of philosophy or religion. It's just not biblical Christianity. See, biblical Christianity is not about getting rid of your emotions, burying them or detaching them from yourself. It's about leaning into them and understanding what the title of our series is here, that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to have that feeling of rage or resentment or bitterness or anger or frustration bubble up within you. But then here's the invitation for all of us this morning, that it's okay not to be okay, but you don't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to stay that way. So if you got in a fight this morning, if you've been angry this weekend, if you've been in just kind of this tense space for months or even years or decades, it's okay to experience that, but you do not have to stay that way. 
And that's what I hope Psalm chapter 109 is going to teach us and help us work through this morning. Again, we'll be in Psalm 109. David is writing this. We'll start in the first verse. It'll be on the screen. It says this, My God whom I praise, do not remain silent. So from the very top of the psalm, what we'll notice is that David is speaking to God. He is speaking, he's saying, my God whom I praise, do not remain silent. What we're going to see here is a psalm from David that is called one of the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms are the psalms where David is angry, where he is mad. One commentator says where he comes unglued. He goes ballistic in this psalm. He is about to vent his anger and his rage and his frustration at the world. But the thing I want to point out from the very top is that David is angry, and in dealing with his angry anger, he doesn't vent his frustration onto his wife or onto his children. He doesn't get onto his Twitter feed and tell the world how mad he is. Instead, David does something very simple and very profound at the beginning of this verse. He directs his prayer and his anger toward the one who can handle it, and that's God. He directs his anger toward God. And again, this morning, whether you've been angry about something big for decades or something small for only about an hour here, I want to invite you to do two things just as David demonstrates for us here. Number one is I want to invite you to tell God how you feel right away. Once you feel that anger bubbling up inside of you, once that frustration starts to mount up inside of you, tell God how you feel right away. And then furthermore, tell God how you feel all the way. Not just bits, not just pieces, Not just the things you think sound nice in a religious context. Tell God all that you feel. Tell him all the way and right away what's going on in your heart. See, this morning as we talk about anger over and over, I'm going to remind you that the key is not to get rid of anger. It's not to be ashamed or embarrassed of your anger or to try to find some way to detach from the world so you never feel mad about anything. See, the mistake people make is not that they are angry. It's that they fail to go to God with their anger all the way and right away. Like I'll put it to you this way. This last week, I had the opportunity to go to the beach with my kids. Uh, my wife was busy with some things, and so I took my older two kids, um, my four-year-old and my two-year-old, to the beach, and it was a blast. We had a great time at the beach. We're playing at the beach, and then it was time to pack up and to go home. So we go back to the car, and I put the kids in the car, and then I start loading the stuff into the car. Now, now here's what I want to point out, and I wonder if you'll resonate with this. There are really two types of people who pack their car up after the beach. The first type of person is the person who neatly folds everything into bags and boxes and kind of has a system for this and puts it inside the car. I need you to know I'm not one of those people. (laughs) Anyone like me who just says, you know, you just shove it in there. Like if the door closes, if the trunk closes, it is considered a success. That's me, okay? So I just push everything in there, the wagon and the toys and then the umbrella and the sandy wet beach towels, and I just push it all in there. I close the door, I drive back home. I get my kids lunch, I put them down for nap, and I roll on with my day without giving the car another second's thought. Now here's the two mistakes I made. Mistake number one is that I did not return to the car to get the smelly, wet, sandy beach towels until the next morning. Mistake number two is that it was my wife's car. (laughs) I know, I know, that's what happened. So, so I get there the next morning and I open up the car and the stench is so bad, I seriously consider just selling the vehicle rather than dealing with it. And, and I, obviously I clean out the towels and I deal with that, but, but what was my mistake here? My mistake wasn't putting the smelly beach towels in there in the first place. Unless the goal was like, leave them at the beach, forsake them. Like, no, I was gonna put them in the car. My mistake was not dealing with them all the way and right away. That was my mistake. 
The same is true for anger. When you're angry, the mistake isn't that you felt angry. The error isn't that you have that frustration bubbling up inside of you. The error is that you don't deal with it and go to God all the way and right away. See, I'll put it this way. The question is not, how do I never get angry? I think that's a fool's errand. I don't think that's something that's achievable this side of heaven. I think the question is, what will I do with my anger when I feel it, when I sense it, when it's inside of me? And I think that's what David helps us do here. He goes to the Lord all the way and right away. And in verse two, it says this, for people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With a word of hatred, they surrounded me. They attacked me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accused me, but I am a man of prayer. So David begins to describe to us why he's so angry. What's caused him to go so ballistic? What's causing him to come unglued here? And you'll see here in verses two, three, and four, he describes what happened to him. And what's really interesting to me is what didn't happen to him. You'll notice it doesn't say he was physically attacked. It doesn't say he was robbed. It doesn't say people came in and burned my house to the ground. Instead, what does it say in verse two? People opened their mouths against me. Again, in verse two, they spoke against me. In verse three, they had words of hatred. In verse four, they accused me. Like in other words, what has wounded David so deeply, what has caused his anger and rage is not something that has been done to him, but rather what has been said to him. And as we deal with our anger and think about what it means to face and work through the anger in our life, we must recognize the wounds that happen in our world. And so often those wounds that have happened to you and that have happened to me are not because of what people have done to us, but because of what people have said to us. Now, some of you will remember, maybe you've told this to your kids. Maybe you were told this as a kid. Um, You remember this phrase? See if you can finish it with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Could there be a bigger lie we tell our kids? (laughs) Like, that is the lie. Like, yes, sticks and stones will break your bones. Fact check, true. Like, keep that in mind. But words will never hurt you? Ever? You're never going to be hurt by words? You've never been hurt by what someone said or not said? Uh, Again, I think it's true for our kids. It's true for us. We get deeply wounded by the words people say. Like there's three ways it happens. Number one, words spoken to you can hurt. Someone said something foul or vicious or mean or cruel to you, and it wounded you deeply. That matters. Words hurt. Words spoken about you can hurt. Words you didn't even hear, but someone else heard someone say behind your back as they were gossiping about you or sharing about you while you weren't present. And then finally, words not spoken to you can hurt. It's the little girl who never hears her dad say, I'm proud of you. It's the wife who stopped hearing years ago from her husband, I love you. It's the young man or woman who's never been told, you matter, you have gifts, you're valuable, we see a future for you. See, words can hurt us deeply. And if we want to start to heal and recover from the anger in our lives, we can't start with the anger. We have to actually go back to the wound that started it. Underneath anger is always a woundedness, a pain, a hurt that was caused often by what someone said about us, to us, or what someone hasn't said Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, show me an angry person and I'll show you a hurt person. I believe this is true for us. And if we want to work through our anger, if we want to work through that rage, that frustration, that bitterness inside of us, we have to get back to the root of where the hurt was caused in the first place. And in David's case, in this Psalm, it's not from what someone did to him. It's what they said to him. In verse five, it goes on this way. It says, they repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. So again, David summarizes it quickly and says it really well. He faces reality clearly and says this, I was good to them, but they were evil to me. I was a friend to them, but they hated me. 
And once again, what we see is that David is able to identify clearly what happened to him. He's not minimizing or pretending it's okay. And often in the conversation around anger for a church person, like so many of us, is that we feel like we have to put on a facade, say that everything's okay, pretend that we're not angry, pretend that this is just a wonderful, sunny July Sunday morning, that everything's perfect. Uh, And yet what David is able to model for us is something we all need to internalize, that we need to be able to articulate it. We need to be able to say it out loud. We need to be able to face the things going on in our life with courage, and that begins with identifying what it is. I said this last week, I'll say it this week, I'll say it again next week. I want to remind us that what you do not identify will only intensify. That if you are angry and just stewing in this rage and you're not able to point it out clearly, say it for what it is, identify what's actually going on, that rage will be like a wildfire that will eventually consume your life. It will intensify because when you do not identify, it only intensifies. So what does identifying our anger look like? It looks like doing a series of fill in the blank like Mad Libs here, like to try to figure out where this come from. Like to be able to say something with clarity, like I am annoyed with blank because blank. I'm annoyed with my children because they are doing this. I am upset with blank because blank. I'm upset with my spouse because he did this, because she did this. I am resentful toward this organization, this church, this company because of blank. And now this may seem painfully simple to you, but when we're actually in a state of anger, our brain shuts down. And we don't clearly articulate what's in front of us. So we just kind of say things like, I don't know, I'm mad. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm just in a bad mood today. Rather than clearly identifying what's going on in our life. Like just this past Thursday morning, the week I was writing a sermon on anger, um, I got up with my kids and I was making them breakfast and I could just tell I was angry. I started telling myself, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm just kind of in a mood this morning, but I was short with them. I was frustrated with them. I could sense that welling up inside of me. And the superficial answer might just be to say, well, Brian, you have three kids under the age of five. Sometimes it can be frustrating. Give yourself a break. And that's what I want to say, because that would be easy to hit the eject button for me. But then when I stepped back and actually stepped back and took a breath and let them play and said, okay, why am I actually in this state? I realized I'm angry right now because I did not get a good night's rest last night. And I'm angry not at them, but I'm actually angry at me for not going to bed earlier. I have a day here that's stacked up with so much stuff I can't possibly accomplish and I'm overwhelmed. I'm not mad at my kids. I'm mad at myself for stacking up too much in my day and being way too overwhelmed with what I've committed to. See what happens when we step back a little bit and get clarity is we realize in those moments that we think we're angry at something or someone, that there's actually something beneath that. It's actually a lot deeper than that. And again, when we don't identify it, it only intensifies. But the other side is true too, that once you say it, you can start to solve it. Once you say it by the Holy Spirit's power, then you can start to solve it. Then you can start to work through it. Again, the goal is that you not, it's not that you would never feel anger. The goal is that when you do feel anger, you would be able to work through it by the Spirit's power, that you would be able to deal with your anger and face it courageously. It's gonna go on this way in verse six. And... Um, I'm just going to give you a warning. I never do this with Bible verses, but like this is some brutal stuff that's coming. Um, this is one of those sets of verses um, that sometimes I'm surprised is actually in the Bible. You know, there are passages that you just think, okay, that makes sense in the Bible. This isn't one of them, okay? This is what David is going to pray toward his enemy. This is what God, David wants God to do toward his enemy. Just read this, verse 6 through 15. It says this, Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. 
When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his day be few, days be few. May another take his place of leadership. Which actually, if you know the book of Acts in the New Testament, Peter quotes this in Acts 1.20 for the replacement of Judas. But then David goes on and says this. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off. May their names be blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins remain before the Lord that he may blot out their names from the earth. Tell us how you really feel, David, right? Like, this is brutal. Here's like a quick summary of his prayer. God, kill that man and kill his wife. Let the children be orphans, but not well cared for orphans. Take away all that they have so that they will be poor and needy and hungry wandering the earth. Destroy the parents, destroy the children. In fact, I want curses on that family for their generation and the next generation and the next generation after that. And in addition to that, God, would you cut them off from before the earth and not hear their prayers? This is how David prays. And again, sometimes in my anger and my frustration, I feel like I have to sanitize my prayers before God and say, God, I know I really shouldn't feel this way. I just, I just want to let you, you know, like, I kind of feel like I have to clean it up before God. But here's what David models for us. To just bring the gross junk before the Lord. To actually call out to God and like tell him what's actually going on in your heart. Like again, this is so brutal what David prays. What David is praying here is not this simple, nice prayer where everything's easy. In fact, if you were in a prayer meeting and you heard someone praying this, like, Lord, for my ex, I pray. You know, like you would just be horrified. And yet this is what David does. And actually, there's something profound for us to learn here. Because I want to identify something really simple and obvious, but it's important for us this morning. Um, I want to point out that David doesn't actually do any of these things. He prays these things. Like it doesn't say then David got a torch and a sword and decided to go destroy this family and their entire life. He doesn't actually do any of these things. He prays these things. And the reason David doesn't do these things is because David knows something we should all know. That when you decide to get even, when you decide to inflict pain on the person who inflicted pain on you, things never actually get better. They always get worse. David understands that getting even never makes things right, never makes things just, never makes things better. It's the lesson we all learn as kids when you're in high school and there's some kind of drama going on and she said this thing and so you do this thing and then it escalates and escalates and it never gets better. It's any of us who are married who've ever had a fight. You ever have a fight with your spouse that goes like this? They were mad at you, and then you were mad at them for being mad at you, and then they were mad at you for being mad at them for being mad at you, and then it just escalates from there, and you're not even sure what you're fighting about? Never happened in your marriage? Okay. Um, but, but, but that's the thing. We understand this. Get back at one another. Fire back. Make things like even. Do all of this. It never works. It never works in nations. When one nation attacks another nation and then another nation lobs missiles into there to knock out some of their bases or homes or people, no one's ever gone like, all right, even Stevens, we're done, right? It never works. And David knows this. And as much as David wants the fire and judgment of God to rain down on this people, he chooses not to do it. Instead, he prays. See, he has a conflict. And here's what he does with that. 
he understands this point that praying through your anger keeps a conflict from becoming a catastrophe. That praying through your anger helps your marital conflict not become a catastrophe. It helps the conflict with your kid not become a catastrophe. It helps your conflict with your boss not become a catastrophe. When I bring it before the Lord rather than unleash my anger on others, it solves, it mitigates the problem rather than making it worse. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 it says, Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. And this is such a powerful verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't be the person who just constantly stews on your anger, who constantly allows it to just dominate and control your life. Because when you do that, here's what can happen. It says you give the devil a foothold. Like in some strange and mysterious way, the way Satan, the devil, the enemy, gets space and influence on your life is through you not working through your unresolved anger. And so as we don't work through the anger, we actually open ourselves up to a demonic presence, to a demonic influence, where we are submitting ourselves to that which is wicked because we will not work through our anger. So, see, the key here is to say, David prays these really brutal things, but he doesn't do them. He brings it before the Lord his God. He brings the grossest, messiest, angriest, foulest part of himself before God. And rather than take revenge on his own, he decides to bring it to God. I want to see how it goes on this way in verse 16. It says, For he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded, the death to poor, or he hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as a garment and entered his, water, his, his body like water into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped around him, like a belt tied around him forever. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. So again, David is still venting about his enemy. He wants cursing to fall upon him. He wants God to withhold blessing from his life. He's talking about this cursing. Would it just be around him like a belt stuck to him wherever he goes? David is angry. David is venting. David is mad. David wants the worst for his enemy. He is not in this place where he's praying for his enemy in a good way. He's praying against his enemy. And yet here's something really profound we can't miss in this verse, these last words here. It says, may this be the Lord's payment to my accusers who speak evil of me. In other words, David doesn't say this is my payment for what they've done to me. He says this needs to be the Lord's payment for what they've done to me. See, David understands this, and we need to understand this too, that there is one person who gets to be the judge of the universe. There is one person who gets to bring justice. There is one person who gets to ultimately make things right and, and bring retribution and judgment, and that person is not us. That person is seated on the throne of heaven. It is God himself. And so in order to be a faithful man or woman of God, rather than taking vengeance into our own hand, rather than getting even with people, rather than getting back at those who hurt us, we forsake that impulse. Listen, forsaking the impulse to get even is a sign of spiritual maturity. A sign of spiritual maturity is the capacity to say, I want to get back at her. I want to get even. She hurt me, I'm gonna hurt him. He said this about me, I'll say this about him. That is the impulse inside all of us. And to forsake that is a sign of spiritual maturity. To forsake that is a sign that, um, that, that, that God is working in and through our lives and that that anger is being dealt with. Again, when we get wounded, when we get hurt, when something goes wrong in our life, the impulse is to get back at them at least as much, if not more, than they hurt us so that they'll never do it again. 
And what we believe as the people of God is that one day, all people will be judged. You know, some people say to me sometimes, you can't judge me, Brian, only God will judge me. And my response to them is, you are correct. God will judge you. The scriptures tell us that it is appointed once for every man to die and then to stand judgment. Every man and woman will stand before God. Nothing will slip his radar. Everything that has been done will be brought bared before the throne of heaven. And so when someone does something to me, when someone wrongs me, when someone sins against me, I don't have to get back at them. I don't have to get even. I don't have to meet that injustice with vengeance from myself. Vengeance is the Lord's. And that's what David believes here. Verse 21 says this, but you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. And I love how David addresses God here. He addresses him as two things in verse 21. It says, you sovereign and Lord. Sovereign means that he is the God of heaven and earth. He is all powerful. He is infinitely powerful. And yet then he is the Lord. That word Lord is the word Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God for his people. That God is, yes, infinitely powerful, but also intimately present. And in the midst of his suffering and his anger and his rage and his frustration, David knows that there is a God who is infinitely powerful and intimately present, who is with him in this. And what is his request of this God? Help me for your namesake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. See, what David understands is this. David understands that God is not going to keep him from the experience of anger. The anger, just like other human emotions, is just part of how God has made us. If I could put it this way, David understands that anger is inevitable. It's inevitable. And yet David is still going to cry out, God, save me, rescue me, help me, God. I need you to pull me up out of this. Because David knows that anger is inevitable, but there are all kinds of other things that come along with anger that do not need to be inevitable in your life. So again, let me speak this. Anger in your life, with people in your life, with situations in your life, with institutions, with churches, with companies, with nations, that can all be normal. It is inevitable. Let me say it this way. Anger is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment are not. And so often what happens is we get angry at someone and then we end up walking in an entire life for years or even decades in a bitterness and resentment about how much the world owes us how much we've been wronged or how much we've been left out. And so we just feel bitter and resentful and it eats us up from the inside. And God, the God of the universe, can rescue you from that. Anger is inevitable, but bitterness and resentment are not. Listen, anger is inevitable, but negativity and cynicism are not. I try to remind us all the time that cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. This part of us that wants to say, because you wronged me, therefore everyone's going to wrong me. I was wronged by one person, therefore everyone's out to get me. That spirit is not inevitable in your life. If you've been wronged and you're angry, the Lord can rescue you out of a negativity and a cynicism and bring your feet to solid ground. Listen, anger is inevitable, but revenge and payback are not. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Revenge and payback never makes things right. It never makes things better. The situation is never solved when you hurt the person just as bad as they hurt you. We learn this as a kid and then we forget this as adults. We think somehow we can get back at someone and it all becomes even and it never works that way. God can rescue us from that impulse. Listen, anger is inevitable, but viciousness and slander are not. What often happens to people is they get angry and sometimes it is a justified, a righteous indignation that they have. They are angry for good reasons, but then that leads them into a place of viciousness and of slander. And if you doubt that that is the case, would you take 10 minutes this afternoon to log on to any social media site in the world and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Listen, our nation, our world is filled with angry people 
who are dealing with their anger through viciousness, through cruelty, through saying slanderous things that they should not say. Listen, anger is inevitable, but cruelty and abuse are not. I just know for far too many people, your story is this, that when you were a kid, you were abused. You were hurt. You had a terrible childhood. You had a home that was just hard in every conceivable way. And so what so often happens is that we grow up with a kind of anger from that childhood, and then we turn around and we inflict that abuse on the next generation, often our own children. There is this cycle of generational curse, but it can be broken. God can save. God can rescue. You don't have to be like your father. You don't have to treat your kids like he treated you. It doesn't have to be that way. See, anger is inevitable, but cruelty and abuse, that is a cycle that can be broken through the generations. Listen, anger is inevitable, but finally sin and wickedness are not. And so often what happens is that when we get angry, we feel justified in our decisions. We feel like no one can tell us no, or no one can correct us. No one can rebuke us from our sin, and we have nothing to repent of. But anger is not a license to sin. You see, anger is something that is inevitable. It's going to stir up within us. But the choice to walk not in holiness and righteousness, but rather in sin and wickedness, is a choice you get to make. See, again, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, you'll see these words. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Notice it doesn't say, don't be angry. It assumes you'll be angry. But it says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not make decisions that are contrary to what it means to follow after Jesus, to walk in holiness, and be a light to the nations. Again, David cries out to the Lord his God, the sovereign Lord, and says, rescue me, save me. David knows he's angry, but he wants God to rescue him from the effects of that anger. It goes on in verse 22 and says, for I am poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. Can you tell the deep pain that's going on for David here? I'm poor, I'm needy. My heart is wounded. Verse 23, I fade like an evening shadow. I am ta- I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers, and when they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Now, once again, he's going to cry out that God would rescue him and that God would save him. But one of the most interesting things to me here is David, who has been wounded, who has been wronged, who has a righteous indignation toward his enemy. He has a justifying kind of anger cries out to the Lord his God, what is the request that you would save me? But then it doesn't say, save me according to my righteousness. It says, save me according to your unfailing love, according to your righteousness. See, there's something beautiful here. David doesn't say, well, I've done no wrong and they've wronged me, so God, you need to rescue me. She hurt me and I didn't even deserve it. I've done nothing wrong here, so God, you need to help me out of this situation. See, often our prayers try to show how righteous we are and how wrong the other person was. And because they were wrong and we were right, God should rescue us. But that's not what David prays. And that should not be the way we pray. If anger has led you to a place where your prayers are, God, I'm right and they're wrong, therefore rescue me. You've missed the heart of our God and the point of our gospel. See, our gospel starts with this interesting declaration that everyone, everyone is both sinner and someone who has been sinned against. Everyone is, all of us, sinner, sinned against. And we can so easily forget some of these. And for some of you, in your shame and your embarrassment about yourself, you forget that you've actually been sinned against and wronged. But more often than not, when you are angry about something, you actually forget that you are a sinner too. You forget that you have harmed others just as they have harmed you. You forget that you are a sinner before your God. 
And when you forget that you are a sinner, your anger can quickly lead to something. I'll say it this way, that unchecked anger can quickly lead to self-righteousness. And here's what we need to declare this morning, that self-righteousness and the gospel are going opposite directions in your life. That self-righteousness has nothing to do with the good news of Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite. See, self-righteousness says, I am right and they are wrong. I've done nothing bad and they've done everything bad. Self-righteousness says, God should save me and rescue me because I'm a good person, because I've done good things, because I've done everything right. The gospel says the exact opposite. The gospel says, God does not rescue me because I'm awesome. God rescues me because he's awesome, because he is good, because he is faithful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says this, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like God made him who had no sin, Jesus, the sinless, perfect one, the only one who gets to claim he's never sinned. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Like on the cross, it's not just that Jesus suffers, it's that he takes on my sin and your sin and suffers for it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, there's a gift exchange that happens. The gift exchange is that I give Jesus my sin and he gives to me his righteousness. I give Jesus my wickedness, he gives me his holiness. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is this exchange of our sin for God's holiness and we need to recognize that that is completely antithetical to this kind of self-righteous posturing that says because I'm angry, no one can correct me. The gospel points us to a different thing, not a self-righteousness, but a righteousness through God. If you're listening to the sermon this morning and you're feeling angry, if you're feeling like you've been mad for a long time, for a long season, or maybe just for a short little while, but you need to work through that, I want to invite you to remember the cross, to remember the gospel this morning. All throughout the series, we've been opening up the prayer chapel immediately after the service. There are pastors in there who will offer you communion. You can take that communion on your own. You can pray with a pastor. You can have a moment to remember the cross of Jesus Christ, to remember that your righteousness does not come from within you, but rather from Jesus who gives it to you freely as a gift. I invite you to join us in the prayer chapel immediately after the service if you want to take communion and remember that it is Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' love that we call upon. See, David calls out and says, help me, Lord my God, according to your unfailing love. We'll close here in verse 27 with these words. It says, let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with with disgrace and wrapped in a shame as as in a cloak. Verse 30, with my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him, for he stands in the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. So David ends the psalm where he's just come unglued. He's gone ballistic. We've seen his prayers. We've seen some brutal, raw, gritty stuff come out of David toward the Lord. And it's the psalm of his anger and his contempt and his rage and his frustration at the world. We see very clearly the anger of David in the psalm. And yet he ends with something peculiar at first glance. He ends in his anger with worship. You'll notice it talks about, I was worshiping. I'm praising the Lord. Amongst this throng of worshipers, God, I want to lift up my voice. It's anger and it's worship. Side by side with one another at the end of this psalm. And that's where I want to leave us this day. Today, as we talk about anger, I want to leave us with the thought of anger and worship sitting side by side. 
Because the more we think about it, the more we'll realize the connection between anger and worship. The more we'll realize what worship does for us in the midst of our anger. I'll put it to you a few ways as we close this morning. Number one, anger says things should go my way. Worship says things should go God's way. If anger is me and my response to things not going my way in the world, worship is me saying, God, it's your plan. It's your will be done. Your kingdom come. Let it go your way in this world. Listen, anger puts me at the center, but worship puts God at the center. Anger makes it all about me and my emotions. And when I'm mad, I think about me and I get caught in my little world, in my little cycle, in my little experience of my life. But anger takes me, or worship takes me out of that and says that God is at the center. God is centered around all things. I'm just a bit player on the side here. Listen, anger says my way is always right, but worship says God's way is always right. When I'm angry, I want everyone to do things the way I want them to do them. But when I worship, I'm confessing that God is in control, not me, and I can let go. Listen, says anger says I have done no wrong, but worship says God has done no wrong. And my anger says that I've done no wrong. She wronged me. He wronged me. They wronged me. I point my finger at everyone else. When I worship, I do the opposite. I raise my hands to the sky and I say, God has done no wrong. I have no complaint against him that would hold any water in any court. I cannot accuse him anywhere. That is what I bring before my God. Listen, anger says my emotion is my king, but worship says my God is my king. When I'm angry, I'm controlled by this emotion, this rage inside of me that's dictating everything that I do. I treat it as my king, as my governor, as my Lord. But worship says, no, 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 my God is in charge. He is my king. I'm not going to listen first and foremost to how I feel. I'm going to listen to my God. And then finally, listen, anger says my enemy will pay it all, but worship says my Jesus paid it all. Worship says my Jesus paid it all. See, in my anger, I want you to pay for what you did for me. In my rage, I want you to get, I want to get even with you and make you suffer just as much as I suffered. The natural inclination of the human being when they are wounded is to make the other person suffer just as much as we suffered. It's to make them pay. But when I worship, I'm reminded that my Jesus paid it all. Like the whole story of the gospel as we sing out to the Lord our God is that he paid for us that we might be in right relationship with him. And if Jesus did that for me, surely I can do that for others. See, what I want us to see here so clearly in Psalm 109 is that David, who's come unglued, he's going ballistic, he's dealing with his anger by bringing it before his God, and yet he understands this, that the right response to his anger is to worship, to lift up his voice, and to praise the Lord his God. See, it's okay to not be okay. But again, the invitation for you is you do not have to stay that way. This morning, I'm gonna pray, and our band's gonna come out, and we're gonna close with one more song, and I'm gonna invite all of us, wherever we are, whether your anger is just a small thing that happened today or a huge thing that's been going on for a long time, to bring that before the Lord your God and to cry out to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word and thank you for David. God, even as I read David's words, I'm just so deeply moved by the rage that was inside of him and I see that inside of me, I see that inside of others and God, I ask you, you would help us deal with that. God, would we be a church that calls out to you, that cries out to you in our anger, our rage, our disappointment, our resentment, our bitterness, our frustration? God, would you hear it? Would you respond from heaven and bring healing to our hearts and souls and minds? God, I pray for anyone listening in this room, online right now, anyone who's just struggling with a rage or an anger because of something that was unjustly done to them. God, I pray you would help them work through that. Help them find healing and hope in Jesus. 
And for all of us, as anger bubbles up, God, may we be a people who give it to you, who call out to you, who trust you in the midst of it. And through worshiping, may we find healing. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.